so excited about today's discussion, not only because of the topic, it is one of my favorite topics of all time, but also because we have a wonderful set of guests, uh, Tracy Alloway of Bloomberg, although it, it is hard for me to think of Tracy as not being at the Financial Times and particularly at FT Alphal, because that is where I started reading her work years ago. And it got me interested in the most obscure uh, deep dives into financial economics. So I am eternally grateful to Tracy's writing. And last year in 2019, she went down the rabbit hole of the imperial Chinese bonds and wrote a piece that went viral and resulted in all of us who had ever written anything on it getting tons of emails from both complimentary and uh, very irate people asking about all sorts of questions ranging from the return of the Elgin marbles uh, to Manchukuo bonds uh, issued by the imperial government in Manchuria. So uh, I am eternally grateful to Tracy, not only for um, introducing me to a wide variety of topics in finance, but uh, for giving life to this uh, crazy topic in 2019. And uh, our next guest is the incomparable Lee Bukite, who is the father of mod modern sovereign debt uh, litigation, uh, restructuring, history, everything you can imagine. So Lee knows more about uh, these bonds and attempts to restart the lives of antique sovereign bonds than anyone out there. So we're very lucky to have him. And our final guest is Alex Shaw, a former student of mine. And I asked Alex to join us because many months ago when Alex was in my class, he was given an assignment to uh, think about restarting claims on imperial Chinese bonds. And this was sort of an introductory assignment that I give students to get them started in thinking about the terms of sovereign bonds. And uh, Alex uh, and his partner, they did so much more work than any students had ever done on this particular assignment. Remember, it was just an introductory assignment. They basically tracked down every single defaulted Chinese bond from the early part of the last century and figured out which of those had terms that you could at least bring a theoretical claim on. So given that Alex has gone down this rabbit hole deeper than anybody I know, I thought it would be fun uh, for us to have his perspective as well. Now, I've told you that I love these. They, they, every time I come back to these bonds and look at them, it, it is like an Indiana Jones adventure, uh, searching antique stores around the world for that elusive bond that might have that special contractual provision 
that promises a first priority payment or promises that all successor governments will pay the debts of prior governments. And one day, maybe you'll just find that bond that will yield you millions of dollars. So it's, it is a nice story to tell. I don't actually think that any of these claims are plausible, but it makes it a lot of fun to think about. Now, my co-host uh, takes a more skeptical perspective, I think, of uh, my indulgences, yet he tolerates them. So I'll turn things over to Mark before we start asking Tracy and Lee questions about these. So Mark, over to you. Well, I dearly love Me Too and his many enthusiasms, but this one I have a hard time getting worked up about um, for three reasons. And let me just cover them quickly because I'm much more excited to hear from Tracy and Lee and Alex uh, for their perspectives on this. So the first reason is that these obligations we are tempted to talk about as if they might have some plausible legal merit. And in my view, they don't and they shouldn't. And there are so many reasons why they don't have legal merit that to be honest, I sometimes get just exhausted even trying to count them. There's the sovereign immunity barrier that China is entitled to assert. There's the statute of limitations barrier. And there's the fact that many of these bonds might not even be valid under whatever law governs them, which might well be Chinese law in some of these cases. So there are already plenty of fanatical advocates for these bonds. Uh, and sometimes I think we shouldn't encourage them by pretending that there's a legal basis for their claims. So that's reason one. So reason two is I have to acknowledge that, you know, we don't have to think of these as plausible legal claims. They're just rhetorical ammunition for the US government. And, you know, the administration could try to invoke these unpaid debts to extract some concession from the Chinese government. But if that concession means persuading the Chinese government to pay money to the holders of these bonds, I have to say I find that kind of appalling. Uh, you, you have to spend real negotiating capital to make that happen. And the idea that the US government would spend its negotiating capital trying to get a benefit for this particular group of claimants I mean, maybe that's plausible under present circumstances, but it's not uh, a proposition to be excited about. These are not people who have real legal claims. These are people who are basically doing investor cosplay. They bought some pretty stuff for their walls, and now they're um, acting as if they were real investments. And then finally, you know, if this is a bargaining chip in some negotiation between governments, where does this end? Anything can be a bargaining chip if we're willing to just invent legally invalid claims to use. So I have one I'd like to talk about perhaps later. I'm wondering whether the Chinese government might claim restitution of all the indemnity payments imposed on it in the early 1900s. I did some rough back of the envelope math. That's about a quarter billion and about 250 billion, excuse me, in today's dollars. That seems like a nice offset to the US government's offset. In any event, there's plenty of people talking about these. 
I'm not sure they need further help from from us. But with that said, <laughs> I'm I never like to um, to disagree with me too, and so we will agree that the topic is interesting, even if some of us find it more provocative than others. Okay, so the one thing that I'll agree with Mark. Uh on is that these bonds are so gorgeous. If you could see my background, which you can't, I have one of the prettiest Chinese bonds, the defaulted imperial bonds, as my background for my Zoom screen. But let, let's start by um, asking Tracy the question I have been uh, curious about ever since she wrote her piece last year but haven't had an opportunity to talk to her about. Tracy, your piece went viral in a way, I think, that most pieces don't. And to give us a sense of whether you expected that or why, and what is it that you said that just generated all of this attention? Sure. Well, let me just start by, by saying thank you so much for having me and for the very, very flattering intro. And I'm always grateful for a chance to talk about, you know, a hundred year old antique imperial bonds. So thank you so much for that. And I think you're right. It's pretty rare that a piece about, you know, the, the legalities and the technicalities of debt goes viral in this way. I'm afraid I've been thinking about it probably a little bit too much. I think I've gone down a rabbit hole, but to me, the thing that really stands out here is we hardly ever think about debt in this way, but debt really is about morality and fairness. You owe me something or I owe you something and using debt, debt that has the ability to provoke emotions on either side can be a really effective political tool because of that moral dimension. And I think that's why this topic started garnering so much interest uh, in the context of the Trump administration and uh, the trade discussions with China and ongoing strains in the US-China relationship. So if you take the US, for example, the US wants to claim some sort of moral superiority over China. And using these bonds or the idea that China owes the US $1 trillion worth of debt, it's such an enticing way of doing that and conversely, in China, these bonds are fraught with all sorts of terrible connotations. I think I wrote in the article that they're basically synonymous with a time period known as China's 100 years of humiliation. That was a time when the country was basically carved up by foreign powers. So they view the debt as being about a corrupt imperial regime that bent to the will and the greed of the West, uh, sort of going back to what Mark was saying about this notion of restitution. So. There are emotions involved and questions over justice and morals on either side. Uh, there's one more thing that I just want to mention. There's another reason that um, the bonds went viral here in Asia, and that was because of the situation in Hong Kong and the pro-democracy protests last year. It was really surreal to me at one point in Hong Kong, I think it was in September, if you went out on the streets and looked at some of the banners that protesters were holding, they were holding up banners about these hundred year old bonds. They had slogans like China owes the US $1 trillion in debt. People want to claim moral superiority in multiple disagreements going on with China at the moment. And these bonds really offer one salient way of doing that. Lee, how you have been 
part of literally hundreds of these negotiations. And how plausible is it that obligations from over a hundred years ago, particularly obligations that as Tracy said, and as Mark said before, are full of all sorts of bad behavior by Western governments, the type of behavior that I hope they would rather forget. How plausible is it that an administration like that of the Mr. Trump could actually use these? Well, I think it would be regarded as a rhetorical gesture. Uh, there have been instances in which countries uh, acting on behalf of holders of what we're all calling antique bonds have extracted some money from the successor governments that issued those bonds in the mid-1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation was keen to issue new euro bonds. Uh, the French government said that it would not give its approval to the sale, uh, the offering and sale of Russian Federation euro bonds in France unless the Russian Federation paid a lump sum amount to settle claims of French citizens holding old czarist bonds. And those czarist bonds were the same era that we're talking about uh, here, the very early 19th century. And the Russian Federation paid, I think, $400 million, something like that, um, as a lump sum settlement, I believe the British did something similar, but in their case, it was a question of whether they were, the Bank of England was going to return Russian gold. Uh, and I think they extracted something. So there have been instances in which countries have been able to use some leverage uh, to get uh, some kind of compensation. Uh, but I think nothing like what we're talking about, a trillion dollars, uh, and particularly in the context of the current relationship between the PRC and the United States, I, I think this would be regarded as a rhetorical gesture and, and not really a, a serious claim. And so Lee's comment reminds me that of course we should be thinking about these as having some value as investments because of the possibility of political intervention by the US government. And I wanted to ask Tracy about this, but I think, I think also Lee may have some views on it because my sense is that the US government doesn't really know how it wants to treat these bonds itself. And in fact, it's been somewhat schizophrenic in its approach to them. So the SEC, as I recall from Tracy's article, actually filed securities fraud charges against people who were promoting these as investments. And the idea was, you can't say these are investments that might appreciate in value. These are just collectibles. You buy them and you hang them on your wall and you're done. You're committing securities fraud to suggest otherwise. And yet as Lee 
points out, it is plausible to view them as investments and not just in the sense that if we drum up a frenzy, we can sell them for more in the secondary market, but they might actually have a, a real return if the US government decides to treat them as claims worth pursuing. Did you get a sense that the two parts of the government's brain were in communication with each other, Tracy? Or is this just something that, you know, you have two different parts of the administration marching in two different directions? So I have to be very careful what I say when talking about the US government's brain, but uh, let me, I'll put it this way. So the idea that there might be inconsistencies between different parts of the US government at the moment, I don't think that's a far-fetched idea. Uh, Mark, you're right. The SEC prosecuted uh, actually some really interesting people about these bonds. Uh, there was a Texas pastor who used to be a spiritual advisor to George W. Bush and also a financial planner called Gregory Allen Smith. Uh, they prosecuted them for mis-selling the bonds primarily to elderly re retirees. And you know, if you're an SEC lawyer looking to make a name for yourself, this kind of case is certainly one way to do it, especially involving these kinds of people. You're talking about a, a pastor who was quite famous in Texas, the head of a, a what, what's called a mega church down there. Uh, the chances of payouts on the bonds is minuscule to non-existent, according to the SEC. And to them, I think it gets to the, the degree of representation on the bonds. Maybe if you're selling them with a massive caveat, which is, you know, these are 100-year-old claims, they're going to be very difficult to revive. We're depending entirely on the U.S. administration actually taking these up as a cause. Maybe you could argue there's the potential for return. But the way the SEC viewed this particular uh, scheme or program was that they were selling these to elderly people as entirely risk-free and safe investments. And, and doing that when I think most people would argue at the moment they're really collectible memorabilia was a misrepresentation, according to the SEC. But going back to your original question, Mark, you know, the Trump administration is driven by different incentives. That administration wants as many clubs with which to figuratively hit China over the head with as possible. So in that context, merely talking about the bonds could suit their purpose. And getting back to what I was saying earlier, it has the potential to give the US this veneer of moral superiority that plays right into Trump's support base. And from my reporting, we know that Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross have met with bondholders, um, the China bondholders and their representatives. My understanding from administration officials is that they think reviving claims on the bonds isn't legally viable, but that doesn't preclude the administration from making noises about the debt. And I should just mention that we had an interesting event recently where it emerged that Trump officials had been discussing how to put pressure on the Hong Kong dollar peg after the introduction of the national security law here in Hong Kong. This is something that would absolutely roil the Hong Kong market and potentially global markets, uh, something that most people would view as a very, very serious thing for the Trump administration to do. Ultimately, it seems that officials decided it wouldn't be a good idea to break the peg, but of course, merely talking about it created 
a major stir. So to me, it comes down to these two different incentives between the SEC and the Trump administration. What are different parts of the government trying to accomplish at the moment? So um, Tracy and Lee, uh, I'm going to bring you around to the topic uh, that you've both avoided uh, and Mark has dismissed. As I think both of you have said, this is primarily a political tool. But bear with me. Is it possible that somebody like Alex could find a dollar-issued bond that has a first priority claim that says that the Chinese government and all its successors will pay these bonds first before any other obligations? Is it possible that such a claim could actually be viable? Lee? Tracy? I'll follow Tracy. No, no, I was going to pass the book to you. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Look, uh, when you say viable, let's be clear about what we mean. Money, money. Could I get money? No, no, let's be clear about the the legal context. Uh, One of the defenses that would be encountered is statute of limitations. That is the defense that China has run before in cases like this. These bonds, uh, the imperial Chinese government bonds matured between 1950 and 1960. The statute of limitations for this kind of claim in New York is six years. Uh, There's a lot of talk about whether the statute of limitations was told while we did not recognize the PRC, but that ended in 1979. And the courts have said that uh, these are time-barred claims. Because a claim is time-barred, it means it cannot be brought to a court at least a U.S. court for enforcement. It doesn't mean that the claim loses all of its vitality. It can still be used, for example, in a set-off. And this, I think, is probably where the Trump administration shook out on this issue. They probably concluded that the claims could not be enforced in a U.S. court, uh, but if they could say that we owe China money and China owes us money, uh, that the claim would still retain some vitality in, a, in the context uh, of a set-off. The first priority promise in the light of the Paripasu litigation in Argentina in 2011 and 2012 where holdout creditors from the last, (laughs) the next to the last Argentine uh, debt restructuring argued that a promise that their bonds would rank equally with Argentina's other debt justified the court in enjoining, ordering Argentina not to pay, uh, not to make payments on the bonds it issued in that old restructuring in 2005, unless it paid the holdouts in full. 
that was a legal theory that got a little bit of traction. And so if you have now a promise that these bonds will be paid in priority to everything else, either arguably even stronger than a promise that they will rank equally with everything else, the argument would be that there is a new cause of action that arises every time China pays one of its global bonds, and, and therefore the statute of limitations issue uh, is not a problem. I, I still think it is pretty far-fetched, and there are the statute of limitations is only one of the possible defenses that China could run to such an action. Mm. Uh, I'll just add on to what Lee said. This the set-off idea, the notion that if China isn't paying out on debt claims that the U.S. believes are viable, then the U.S. can kind of use that debt to cancel out what it owes to China. My understanding is that is what um, the Trump administration has discussed, uh, and it's what the, this group of Chinese bondholders called the American Bondholders Foundation Foundation has been pushing. Um, the other interesting theory that the ABF uh, has been espousing is this idea that China is in selective default in some way. So they argue that back in 1987, China actually negotiated a settlement on some of these bonds with the UK. This was back when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister and it was part of the, uh, the handover deal of Hong Kong. And so they argue that that could be the basis as well for, for some sort of revival of the claims. The really interesting thing, I think, um, and maybe this doesn't get enough attention, but the ABF is also pushing for the notion that if China doesn't pay out on the debt, then it could be blocked from selling new debt in international markets. And I'm not entirely clear on the legal basis for that, but what it does suggest to me is, you know, there's this intense search for different ways, I think I said this earlier, for different ways to penalize China. And if you use these bonds um, the way the Trump administration might be thinking of using them, they could be a, a really good way to sort of justify these different punishment tools um, on China at the moment. Well, Tracy, they, the U.S. government could have said the first time China wanted to issue a global bond with a U.S. tranche, and I suspect they did that in the 1990s, but I'm, I'm not sure exactly when they issued their first one. That would have been the time if the U.S. government wanted to try to replicate the, the French pressure on the Russian Federation to have said to China, we're not going to allow you access to the U.S. market unless you settle with us on behalf of these uh, holders of the old imperial bonds. It, uh, one of the cases that I just reread about the imperial bonds uh, mentioned that China and the United States had entered into an international claim settlement agreement after we recognized the PRC in 1979. And those sorts of so-called lump sum settlements are instruments where the U.S. government 
acting on behalf of claimants, U.S.-based claimants, whether uh, people whose property has been expropriated, tort claimants, or contract claimants, uh, negotiates a lump sum agreement with a foreign state. Uh, and the U.S. government's done that more than 200 times in our history. We apparently did it with the PRC. And so one would have to look at that to see whether claims arising under these imperial Chinese bonds that are held by Americans might have already been covered by that claim settlement or that China could argue that the claim settlement uh, removed any ability of a private holder now to bring an independent action in court. Can I can I jump in here, uh, Lee, just to add on what yeah. Lee just, has just said? Um, I think I actually read into the uh, negotiation process you've just mentioned uh, in uh, 1979 between the U.S. and Chinese delegation on this issue. And I think uh, so. I read the uh, memoir of the you know Chinese uh, delegation of that time, and they have mentioned that the U.S. government specifically refused to release China from liabilities uh, that could potentially arisen out of uh, you know private citizens in the U.S. Uh, who hold these you know the, the claims uh, that can be brought by the private citizens in the U.S. Uh, against okay. the Chinese government on these bonds. So uh, I think it's just uh, the the government uh, um, does reach a settlement, settlement, but uh, the private parties uh, have, have not. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's very helpful. Thank you, Alex. Mm -hmm. All right, um, shall we take a break here and then uh, we'll uh, move on to the next um, stage of our questioning. Well, we've talked about the plausibility of a claim being brought on these imperial Chinese bonds. And despite my enthusiasm, uh, Mark, Tracy, Lee, and even Alex, who I thought would be my ally, all seem to have poured icy cold water over me, concluding that really this is just a political matter. But I'm going to push this further. And my question to both Lee and Tracy is, let us say that the Chinese government says, instead of its usual position uh, of just not even acknowledging these suits, other than to say that they're immune from any such suit, let us say they say, bring it on. We'll show up in court and we've got a few claims of our own. And this is how I imagine this proceeding in what I have to say could be a very delightful manner. As the claim is brought, especially if it is brought through some representative of the U.S. government, uh, the Chinese government raises the issue of the authorization of these bonds in the first place. And that, it seems to be, is a can of worms that perhaps no Western government 
who was involved in China in the early 1900s once opened because the liability, and I'm just imagining here, could quickly reverse. Lee, is that something out of this world even more crazy than the idea of bringing a claim in the first place? Well, I have to offer you two answers, me too, because I think these are two separate issues. Uh, the authorization question and then what might broadly be called a counterclaim in such a lawsuit. On the authorization question, this is very interesting and very topical right now. Uh, we have, over the last few years, seen several instances in which sovereign debtors have attempted to question whether debt instruments had received the appropriate internal authorizations uh, to make them valid as a matter of the law of the debtor country. Uh, the Guaido administration in Venezuela is prosecuting a lawsuit right now, uh, arguing that some debt instruments that had been issued in the spring of, 19, of 2016 by the state oil company did not receive the necessary uh, approval of the National Assembly, the legislature, uh, and therefore, as a matter of Venezuelan law, are unenforceable. Uh, Mozambique has run a similar argument. Uh, Nigeria is running a similar argument right now. The Ukraine uh, had issued 3 billion euros worth of bonds uh, to the Russian Federation just before the former president of the Ukraine, Yanukovych, was ousted. And Russia sued the Ukraine in an English court. And the Ukraine, one of its defenses was that the bonds had never received appropriate authorization. So this issue uh, is very topical right now. Uh, the problem would be, there are two problems. One is trying to reconstruct what authorizations were necessary in 1911 or 1913 uh, would be almost uh, an insuperable challenge. Second, at least under our law, that sort of argument that there was a fatal infirmity in the uh, issuance of a debt instrument can be overcome by showing that the debtor performed the instrument in the jargon of our law, that it was ratified by performance. And the Chinese paid these bonds, they paid the 1913 bonds for 28 years uh, before they went into default. So that would be another issue. Uh, there. The separate question you've raised is, if you were to bring such an action, would it invite a counterclaim? And that too is fascinating. I had expected 
in the Ukraine, the Russia-Ukraine lawsuit in London, that the Ukrainians might have come into that court and said, yes, we did issue these bonds, uh, but as long as we're here chatting, uh, what about the Crimea? Because Russia had just taken the Crimea. <laughs> and it seemed to me that would have been a ripe uh, counterclaim. Uh, the English courts apparently view such a claim as, to use their phrase, non-justiciable. That is, it is political in nature and not something that a high court judge is able to rule on. And I, I suspect our judges would take a similar view if someone got into uh, a fight trying to resurrect, exhume uh, claims, historical claims for injuries, whether uh, political or uh, or contractual. I'm reminded a little bit of a book by Harold Nicholson, the English writer and in his youth diplomat. He had attended the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. It ended the First World War. And of course, Woodrow Wilson was there uh, promoting his doctrine of self-determination. And so one of the committees was debating what were the criteria for determining whether a people had a right to self-determination, and someone said it had to be history. <coughs> Nicholson's comment was, at that point, the Italian delegate stood up and showed a marked predilection for the empire of Hadrian. Uh, so if one is going to... <laughs> <laughs> look, look to history uh, and ask courts or even, even negotiators, political negotiators, to try to resolve all of the injuries of which uh, history uh, teaches us. Uh, it would be a very long lawsuit. I think Lee makes a really good point. So I'm just going to add on to China specific things here, which is, you know, we're talking about what would happen if China did come to court to hash out who owes what on these bonds. And I just want to mention that China has been brought to court before over these bonds. I think there was a case in 1979 um, where Baker and McKenzie advised the Chinese government. They managed to get the case uh, thrown out on, on, I think it was on the basis of the, the 1976 Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Um, but of course, you all know since then, things have changed uh, with that particular act. So maybe it's not as relevant anymore. But I guess Mitu's question is, what would happen if China came to court and actually, you know, actively participated in um, the lawsuit? And, and to that, I guess I would bring up the concept of odious debt, which is something that Mitu taught me. Uh, odious debt, of course, is this idea of illegitimate debt where, you know, a dictator in one country or some sort of bad entity or bad player uh, borrows from another country and they do it in a way that doesn't actually benefit citizens uh, and maybe even oppresses them or punishes them in, in some way. I believe, having spoken to Mitu about this a number of times, you could possibly mount a legal argument that 
these bonds were some form of odious debt, but I also think that concept has never been properly tested in court. But what I would say is, again, but what I would say is knowing the historical context, the time period in which these bonds were issued, you know, we're talking about the period late 1900s, early 1900s. If anyone has seen The Last Emperor, it's sort of right in that time period. That's a time period when Empress Cixi was in power. She was not a popular historical figure in China. You had uh, the, the new emperor, Puyi, and then you had the Kuomintang kind of take over and, and run um, this sort of puppet government. I could see China using that time period to refute some of the claims. You know, portraying that particular time period as a bad regime, a bad actor regime that borrowed a lot from the West in order to oppress the Chinese people, that plays right into the current Chinese government's um, political ideals. You know, China is obviously run by the Communist Party. They like portraying the empire that came before them, the Kuomintang, as bad players, and they're the ones trying to rectify these wrongs. So I could see them making a possible argument about odious debt here. Well, both of these points, first Lee's and then Tracy's, I think link back to that initial observation Tracy had about debt having this moral dimension where we think of debt obligations as valid if not legally, then morally you borrowed, you should repay. But it's a useful reminder that the moral dimension of debt cuts the other way as well. To some people, debt's a tool, an instrument of corruption and oppression. And so here you've got a context where I think there are diametrically opposing views about the the meaning of this debt. Um, and and uh, so I'm interested in whether, let's acknowledge it doesn't matter so much whether this is a legally enforceable claim, but it is a, a obligation that might have some kind of rhetorical value. Um, where is the stopping point in this uh, this kind of uh, negotiation? It, it, or what is it that gives this particular obligation its kind of political salience here in the United States? You could easily imagine talking about the, you know, an obligation to return the, the Elgin marbles. Um, you could be talking about an obligation, as I mentioned earlier, to make restitution of wrongfully extracted indemnities. So, so what is it you think that makes this particular, those of course would not necessarily be in this context, but what, what makes this such a powerful um, symbolic point here? I don't know if Tracy, if you had thoughts on sort of why people found this particular narrative so useful. At times it seems even to overwhelm narratives about misappropriation of intellectual property rights, for instance. That seems like a, a thing we would be much more likely to talk about than non-payment of some old Chinese bonds that the government doesn't think were validly issued anyway. Mm. I think, so I, let me think how to phrase this. So I, I think we're all sort of in, I think it's fair to say we're all in a kind of legal 
bubble, right? We're all looking at this from a legal context. I think you walk up to a person, a normal person on the street and you say, hey, did you know that China issued all these bonds? Uh, they sold them to a bunch of investors in America and now they're not paying out on them. I think instinctively the knee-jerk reaction for most people is going to be that, hey, that's not fair. And so it's a really useful sort of intellectual nugget or anti-intellectual nugget, I guess, that you can use to make the point that China owes us something. China is doing something unfair. And yes, there are similar arguments that you can make about things like intellectual property, things like uh, onshoring or offshoring manufacturing, you know, the notion that China is stealing our jobs. And we have seen that time and time again. But I think what makes this case particularly unique is that you can throw out these really big numbers and talk about something concrete. China owes us $1 trillion and they're not paying. And that's the kind of simplistic slogan that appeals to people, they immediately understand it, and they're not looking at it from the same legal context that we are. I think that's a good part of the explanation, Mark. Uh, these are contractual claims. One can calculate to the penny uh, what the current value is, unlike you know, other injuries that uh, one might say I'm entitled to compensation for, but the amount of compensation is uh, uh, subjective. Uh, here we've got, you know, you can run the calculator and say exactly what is owed uh, on the bond today. And so that makes it an easier target for this sort of thing. The uh, one word on the odious debt, there, the whole reason, by the way, that we're even talking about legal enforcement of these obligations is that there is a doctrine of public international law which says that governments succeed to inherit uh, both the assets and the liabilities incurred by their predecessor governments. And it doesn't matter how different in political philosophy the governments were. So the Bolsheviks take over from the Tsar, and international law said they are responsible for the debts of the Tsar. Um, and that is the basic principle that uh, anyone attempting to assert a legal claim on these bonds would have to uh, have to base it on. There are only a few exceptions to that very strict rule of government succession to liabilities incurred by their predecessors. And the one that gets debated most often is this question of odious debt. Uh, were the circumstances, well, the, the classic case is the kleptomaniacal dictator borrows money in the name of the state and then proceeds to steal the money and take it on the lamb. Uh, that's the classic case. Is it fair? Is it moral? Is it legal uh, to saddle the citizens of the country with the obligation to repay such a debt? Um, but as Tracy uh, said, it has never 
actually been recognized as a defense to enforcement of a contract in this country that I'm aware of. Uh, and people debate whether it is even a doctrine of international law. But that's the reason we're even talking about this. Uh, otherwise, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the Chinese could say, well, that was the imperial government, go collect from them. And interestingly, the lack of a legal forum to bring this back to Me Too's opening question for this segment, the lack of a legal forum really does simplify the narrative because now it's a narrative in which China borrowed money and didn't pay rather than a narrative in which maybe corrupt officials had their arms twisted to saddle future generations with debt that wasn't um, legally authorized under China's own law. One, of course, wouldn't need odious debt to make an argument like that, but it gets lost in the shuffle when we're not speaking in terms of formal legal claims. Mm -hmm. yeah. can, I, can, I, can I ask Lee, um, do, do you think the political rhetoric here is the reason why Taiwan um, was not has not been sued by the American bondholders on this issue because technically the Republic of China still exists and that is the government that issues the debt and odious, uh, odious debt doctrine does not seem to be uh, something in play here. Well, as, as you know, the nationalist government in Taiwan was, I think, approached on these issues and they said they would cheerfully repay the debt as soon as they regain control over mainland China. <laughs> but there's a very interesting precedent. I'm not uh, fully conversant with it, but I believe that in 1953, when uh, West Germany settled uh, debt claims with uh, creditors going all the way back to the pre-Nazi era, I believe they said they would pay at least some portion of that debt if, as, and when Germany were re reunified. And I believe they did. Uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, I believe they actually honored that promise. There's another research project for you, Alex. Sounds good. <laughs> Well, thank you guys all so very much. Uh, you have been immensely patient uh, in answering our questions. And thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Lee, for giving us so much time. Uh, thank you so much. That was really, really fun. A whole that hour was fun. Talking about all